2: Water is too big a topic to be ignored, to be debated one every 46 years, or to be just put in one SDG.
1: That was Matthias Berninger of German seeds-to-drugs giant Bayer speaking on the eve of the first United Nations Conference on Water Security since 1977. Welcome to The Exchange, the podcast where Reuters Breaking Views columnists speak with people of interest to business and financial professionals around the world. I'm Anthony Curry, an associate editor with Breaking Views based in Melbourne, Australia. In this week's episode, we dive into the global water crisis. By 2030, we'll be using 56% more of this precious resource than is sustainable, A new report, out last week by the Global Commission on the Economics of Water, states that our mismanagement of the resource has pushed the water cycle out of balance for the first time in human history. Climate change is making it even worse. In an effort to galvanise ways to tackle the crisis, the United Nations is this week hosting at its New York headquarters its first major conference on water security in almost 50 years. Bayer appears to be taking the lead. The $60 billion biotechnology and pharmaceuticals giant has just pledged to cut the amount of water needed to grow rice, the third largest crop on the planet, by 25% by the year 2030. It's also devising a method for valuing water so that it, along with water quality and other metrics, can be incorporated properly into its investing and other business decisions. As one of the biggest corporate water users on the planet, Bayer is setting a high bar for others to follow. So I sat down for a virtual chat with one of the architects of the new plan. Matthias Berninger is executive vice president of public affairs, science and sustainability for Bayer. He joined the company just over four years ago, after more than a decade, in a similar role at Mars. And before that, he spent more than 12 years as a member of the German federal parliament for the Green Party. So, Matthias, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show to speak to us.
2: Anthony, we've talked quite a lot about water. I'm glad we have another opportunity today.
1: Absolutely, Matthias. Absolutely. Yes. So yeah, I've, I'm speaking to you years ago when you were at Mars and a couple of times since joining Bear. Be- so it's it's fantastic that we can get this done and really, sort of, pardon the pun, dive into uh, what Bear is doing with water. But before we do that, I'm just going to ask you to set the scene for our listeners. So after the past couple of years of floods and scarcity hitting the headlines, I'd be, I'm would be i pretty skeptical that people don't understand that there's a water crisis of some description. But let's just put it in some context. Can you characterize it for us? Um, how bad is, or how deep is the water crisis? And, and what makes the UN conference at the end of March so important uh, for uh, what everyone wants to do with water?
2: Let's begin with the last UN conference on water commenced in 1977. I was a first grader back then. So this is basically a once-in-a-generation event if we are unlucky, but I'm glad that the UN finally started to refocus on water, inviting both governments, civil society, but also the private sector to come to New York City to talk about what I believe is the most essential topic for solving some of the world's biggest crises.
1: Put that in context then, for us. So how, how would you um, describe the water crisis? I mean, there's probably more than one, but how would you, how would you describe it?
2: For me you can experience climate change through water in four different ways. Uh, We often talk about droughts, we of course see the footage of flooding, polluted water is the third element and the fourth one which we often underestimate is the role water plays in extreme heat, the so-called wet bulb 35 weather situations, basically conditions where humans can't survive for long. So water basically shows up in those four different shapes as a crisis and often people experience all four elements of a crisis in the same year. A very unfortunate example of last year was the flooding in Pakistan, which was preceded by drought, by extreme heat and, of course, followed by water pollution in epic proportions.
1: Absolutely. So when we think about a company getting involved in this, I mean, it's 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 got to be often quite a, a daunting task. We always think about often water is thought about as a national issue or maybe even an international issue. Certainly for a lot of cross border uh, uh, rivers and, and and groundwater issues. How does is a company getting involved in this? I mean, Bayer is big, but it is also just a company. What role is there for companies in tackling the water crisis?
2: My companies are. As part of their role in the value chain in every day's consumption of the 8 billion humans of uh, on this planet, companies are in many ways a key player in water. Most of the water, the fresh water that is used uh, in any given year is also part of a company's value chain. In the case of Bayer, we are part of the ag value chain. We are an important input provider for agricultural production. Agriculture is responsible for more than of the global freshwater use. When we looked at what are the issues most material to us, uh, we, we couldn't look beyond water for a very long time. So given how material water is for agriculture, we obviously had to conclude that it's super material for us as well.
1: So, I mean, that, that statistic is, is crucial, I think, that more than 70% of, of the world's water used on agriculture. And of course, there's a context to that. In some places, it's rain-fed and it seems fine. Other places, it's dependent on irrig- uh, irrigation. But nonetheless, that's, that's a huge amount to consider globally.
2: Yeah. It's, it's, it's huge, Anthony. And, but often, farmers are shaking their heads in the crisis situation. For example, in a situation of drought, The reason why they're shaking their heads is that people complain about them using water but those farmers often have been there before people moved in those regions and put swimming pools in so what we see is that when a water crisis hits a region farmers are usually the first to have to pay a price for it but that of course doesn't stop uh, the need to help farmers to produce more efficiently more effectively which means with much less water in their own value chains
1: mm. no, absolutely i mean there's, there's often i'm sure i've been guilty of this a knee-jerk reaction to say we can all we need to do is reduce the water that farmers use which of course sounds great and easy but we also rather depend on them for the food we eat so and other products obviously well also the, the, the clothing
2: we wear of course yeah so all yep. the fibers all the food we get from agriculture are of course linked to water
1: so um, drilling down into Bayer, how would you describe how big Bayer is in water? I think yeah, you're a big international firm. You touch a lot of the basins in the world. How do you characterize where Bayer fits into all this?
2: On the one hand, we are a leading producer or the leading producer of seeds in the world. Our experts, our seed breeders, uh, the people that work on uh, driving uh, efficiency and effectiveness in agriculture, worry about the topic of water very much so. And we are selecting for seeds that are able to deal better with the conditions of climate change than uh, the generations before. So from that perspective, we, we anticipate of what will be the climatic conditions in 10 years and 15 years. And if you produce a new seed, it takes quite a while before it's on the market. So you really have to look a bit ahead and unfortunately a bit deeper into this big hole of the climate crisis. Uh, and then the second thing where we play a crucial role is on crop protection. These are often chemicals, and those chemicals, of course, play a key role uh, in water pollution. So these are two examples where we are front and center connected to the water crisis.
1: So in the way you're describing it, basically, uh, and this this shouldn't surprise, but I think it does need to be said, water is, it is basically an existential issue for Bayer.
2: We can sell a lot of things, but if there is no rain, there will be no food. In other words... Uh, without water being available for our customers, we don't have a business.
1: Let's look at what you've done thus far, and then we'll get to your 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 new commitment in a, in a few minutes. What you we when we talked in the past, you've you've mentioned a few things. You've mentioned corn, you've mentioned cotton, other crops as well. How would you sum up how Bayer has tried to approach this through which means over the past few years? Before we get to the latest commitment.
2: Drought resistant is a, resistance is a really complex thing for a breeder to, to achieve um, and what we have seen in the past is both for cotton as well as for soy, our understanding of the plant genome has helped us to select and specifically breed for seeds that can uh, endure hot temperatures or drought situations better than what's in the market otherwise. This is why often our customers fare better in drought situations. However, what we have done so far is really um, trying to adjust for weather. We haven't really adjusted for climate. So what's ahead of us in terms of radical temperature changes is going to be much more difficult. And what we are trying to do is we are trying to bring the learnings that we had on a crop like cotton, very water intensive, corn, very water intensive, to the crop that is the most water consuming crop in the world, and that is rice. And if you think about rice, uh, two or three uh, figures stand out. First of all, three and a half billion people, almost half of this planet, depends on a regular access to uh, rice as their uh, food staple. Secondly, 30% of all fresh water that is used in agriculture is somehow touching rice as a plant. And then the third statistic is that 50% of all freshwater in Asia at one point in a given year is utilized in rice cropping. So this is a really important crop. We decided to go for the one that is probably the hardest to tackle when it comes to the water crisis.
1: Hardest to tackle because it's, it's so widely used and, 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 and is so dependent on water?
2: It's so dependent on water. It's also grown in a region that in the past has been relying on both um, uh, 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 rain-fed water reservoirs, as well as regular water coming uh, from the Himalayas. Uh, We see through climate change that is no longer happening. And when you look at the number of wells in India, you will realize that a lot of this rice production now depends on irrigation that draws from the groundwater. So the groundwater levels uh, go down uh, quite significantly in some parts uh, of uh, uh, of Southeast Asia, and therefore focusing on regions where rice is being grown um, that depends on this kind of uh, groundwater withdrawals is is what we will what we will do.
1: Right. To be clear, using groundwater in itself isn't necessarily a problem. It's more how much has been available. The extract how much is being extracted whether it's being over extracted that does seem to be the case i think in india and and elsewhere i think mean, look at uh, california there's huge problems with subsidence from over over yep. but also i think there's there's the emissions issue as well isn't emissions issue of how are farmers getting the water out of the ground so this this then has multiple effects it's not just water is it's, it's the, it, it, and it's also soil it, it takes in a lot of different issues through the lens of water
2: I mean, one of the reasons why agriculture is so dependent on fossil fuels is irrigation because you need a lot of energy uh, and, of course, increasingly a lot of energy to pump water from ever deeper wells. Yeah, So that is, that is, that is certainly uh, one of the big problems. And I think you're absolutely right that if groundwater is replenished through the regular cycle, it's not a problem to, to irrigate. Actually, it's good because it allows you to produce more and less land very effectively. But the NASA, NASA GRACE mission and many other uh, satellite uh, satellite driven uh, data sets have just underscored uh, the degree to which we are depleting our aquifers and the way uh, we, we we have to face um, groundwater levels going down. And that is not a problem in one part of the world. I find it always interesting because people say, well, water is sort of a local or regional crisis. That may be, but it's a local and regional crisis that happens in a hell of a lot of places. So from yeah. that vantage point, yeah. it is it's quite global. Um, and, and our uh, commitment is, let's change the way we grow rice in these kind of regions. Let's move from the classical petty rice into uh, into a a way to, to, to grow rice that is dry-seeded, um, which has a couple of advantages. Uh, huge advantage is um, that you need much less water. The other big advantage is you have much less methane emissions. If you think about rice, 12 percent of all global methane emissions stem from the rice crop. So it's a lot of methane, a lot of greenhouse gas that is linked to cropping uh, this plant. So from that vantage point, Uh, That's an additional co-benefit, and I'll get get back to that in a second. Um, The third benefit is for the farmers, it allows to grow more than just rice on the same plot of land. So it will drive yield not only in the rice crop itself, it will also provide additional degrees of freedom. And that is with much more reliable uh, flow of labor. Um, One of the big challenges for many of the even poorest farmers is to ensure that when they need a lot of labor in the rice crop to actually mobilize uh, 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 people to, to help them. And from that vantage point, um, this will really revolutionize the way we grow the crop. We have seen in our uh, in our research fields uh, where we tested it with smallholder farmers in, in, in parts of India and other parts of the world, that this is really a very attractive uh, 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 proposition for farmers. And our idea is to reduce the amount of water you need um, by 25%. And what we are measuring is the reduction per kilogram of rice produced, per unit of rice being produced. And uh the commitment we wanna we wanna make is that for irrigated rice, we are able to reduce the amount of water needed by a quarter. And that could be e- easily the difference between a depleting groundwater reservoir or one where the wells don't need to be. Um,
1: uh, need to be uh, uh, digged ever deeper. Right. Okay. So, so that twenty five percent sounds quite crucial. How did you come up with that that target? Is it because that is that it could well be the difference you just, as you just described? Is it based on the science you have so far about what you can do with the crop? Is it based on um, on the the pilot programs you've done so far? What What's so crucial? What made you hit on twenty five percent? Why not more? Why not Why not go, shoot for the skies and say fifty percent?
2: We, we wanted to make, first of all, 25% is a lot. Yeah? And agriculture, breeders uh, try to, like, they're happy if they increase the yield of a crop by half a percent, and they spend years on kind of breeding the seeds so that, that that will happen. So 25% less water is a really big deal. But the, the, the real difference in the past is we haven't really attached a water reduction value to a crop innovation. This is the first time we are doing that. And we are we are doing that in a region where the cultural part of agriculture plays a huge role. There are very traditional ways of farming. Now the traditional ways of farming don't work anymore under the climatic decision uh, uh, conditions. So in a way, climate has climate has culture for breakfast. You you can't really you can't really continue as you have done in the past because your conditions are just changing. What you thought about water cycles, weather patterns is no longer working. Uh, still, it's hard to convince uh, uh, growers to transition into a into a completely new space. This is why we believe at the peak, people will be even able to be more water efficient. But 25% uh, seems a safe bet at the start, which gives you mm. a flavor of the magnitude of this transformation.
1: Right. And if so we are able
2: I mean... to, to do that with rice, uh, we are quite optimistic, optimistic that other crops that also depend on irrigation, um, uh, can can follow suit.
1: So what what does that then take um, to to hit that twenty five percent target? What, what does what does Bayer need to do? How how does the research and development? I'm getting involved in this. How, how much money do you need to spend on this? What what's the what's the actual day to day commitments you need to make to get to this to get to this target?
2: For us, this is not a philanthropic exercise. So uh, we we only be, we believe this will only be possible if we if we have a viable business. So if our business in India, who is very smallholder focused, um, is actually able to establish a successful business model. So from that vantage point, we are investing uh, quite a lot in that space, uh, like in many other areas. Uh, but this is really a focus area for us now. Um, we we do not disclose the amount uh, we are investing because also blended with a couple of other things we are doing in the smallholder space. Uh, but um, what I can say is the other important point is that we need to have the whole value chain partnering with us. One of the big challenge with corporate commitments is they cannot really touch the value chain if the other players in the, and I really don't like the term ecosystem, for these kind of business networks, but the other players, for lack of a better word, in the ecosystems are also partnering with us. So it's a combination of off-takers being part of this, of um, uh, people who uh, in the consumer goods area um, need rice uh, helping us with that, but also um, we need a lot of political support. Uh, What we have seen is that especially when you change the culture of agriculture, it's getting political very quickly. So we are quite happy to see support not only from the Indian government and other local governments, but we also see the support of uh, huge donors like USAID, like the World Bank, who understand why this is such a transformational move for rice production in regions that depend on irrigation.
1: And that, that sounds like quite a daunting task. If I were another company listening to this, I'd be thinking, how much, this is a lot of work. How, how have you got to this point where you think you can get this done? What, what has it taken to get this far?
2: I think the insight that water is so material to us that we have to focus and obsess about water in the same way we obsess about greenhouse gas emissions is the starting point. If you think about climate mitigation, you immediately end up with carbon dioxide or the other greenhouse gases. That's the mitigation molecule. Water is the molecule for adaptation. So what I find encouraging is that adaptation is becoming more and more topic in the climate debate. We saw adaptation finally, finally being a part of the COP process, which I think is the most encouraging result of um, uh, COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh. And our hope, of course, is that when we um, have the next COP again in a water-deprived region in Dubai, that COP28 will continue to focus on adaptation because once you say adaptation, you implicitly and often explicitly have to talk about water.
1: That's absolutely right. Let's look at the, the, I mean, you mentioned a lot about the the value chain. The farmers, as you alluded to earlier, at the end of the day are the ones who need to adopt this. And many of them, as you said, as well as smallholder farmers, and I don't for a moment think that they're not looking at what's going on around them and thinking, what do we do? How do we change? But change is also very hard. And a lot of them are, uh, you know, I'm not sure if they're also subsistence farmers, but even in, in the Western world, farmers often exist on a sort of year to year basis, certainly financially. How much are you having to to get involved financially to support farmers through this? And how much are you seeing that they are willing to adopt and adapt as opposed to pushing back and saying, you know, this is how we've always done it. Yes, there are problems, but surely there must be other ways.
2: We have 350 million people in the world at the moment who don't know what to feed their kids for the remainder of this week. Um, They're in acute food insecurity. And that, of course, has been driven by a pandemic. It has been driven by what we currently experience as climate change and the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, which probably played a key triggering role. Mm -hmm. There's one really great sign coming out of that. And that is that we see in more and more regions, communities refocusing on agricultural productivity. So the old idea that if I'm not competitive with the world market, I kind of neglect my rural uh, uh, agriculture and I import the food, is no longer a viable idea in light of the food inflation that the world is seeing at the moment. And despite the oil prices coming down and the dollar are coming down a bit, food inflation still is a major problem for many countries. So, one very important change that will help is that governments in the poorest countries in the world refocus on agriculture and they are hungry for innovation. They are open for new ideas. Secondly, and I think that what's going on in the World Bank at the moment in terms of leadership change, refocusing of the financial institutions there's more and more donor money focusing on rural areas again. That's also a very positive sign. And then thirdly, I think the technology breakthroughs, digital breakthroughs, for example, the use of drones, the mobilization of satellite data in in remotest places in the world, help us to drive a change that we, of course, then complement with a new generation of chemistry and new generation of biology, both driven by progress in genomics and in artificial intelligence. This is a long way of saying that there are a lot of vectors, a lot of factors moving in the right direction right now. And we had experience with now working with 53 million subsistence smallholder farmers. These are some of the poorest farmers in the world. Last year, we managed to reach for the first time in our history, more than 50 million. That's just one in 10 of all the smallholder farmers, but it's a pretty large group of people. And what I realized is, that an experience really trumps the argument. So once you find a few farmers in the community succeeding with doing seemingly odd stuff, that's infectious. Many others are following usually. And we see that development in what we call our better life farming centers, which are communities and and village centers designed to help to kind of spread these kind of innovative approaches of which the dry seeded rice will be one of the um, most important innovations we have for Asia and also for some parts of Africa on shelf now.
1: Other crops, you mentioned obviously this is this, the third the third biggest crop in terms of, of water needs globally. Do you want to go after the top two? If so, when? So how long would it take you to say, okay, this is what we've achieved with rice, let's move on to other ones. Are you going to wait until you hit your your, your 25% target or would you, you say, okay, we've now got this up and running, we're now ready to shift up or broaden our focus?
2: I think we'd love to wait, but we don't have the time the climate crisis is moving at a pace that is scary for ordinary people. When you're in agriculture, you realize it's even scarier. In other words, the pace of changing conditions that farmers have to deal with every day is accelerating. And uh, I don't see us um, staying within 1.5 degrees Celsius, even two degrees Celsius temperature increase by mid of the century. I think it's more likely that we will have a temperature increase of 1.5 degrees compared to pre-industrial levels already by the end of this decade. So in many ways, as we are not slowing down climate change, um, the effects on farmers, uh, and of course, often mostly felt by the poorest, by the most disadvantaged uh, populations in almost every part of the world, uh, uh, the effects will be will be just like, like dismal. So we don't have the time. Uh, we are currently... Uh, working on corn, for example, which is a second crop we are looking at, where we want to introduce a new, much more climate resilient crop uh, that is a significantly shorter version of corn, which has effectively a couple of benefits that, that stand out. Benefit number one is you are much more likely to survive extreme stores, storms. So the, the lodging that happens when there is an extreme storm doesn't affect short corn in the same way it affects the corn fields we all know uh, from pictures of the Midwest and many other regions, including of course the Ukraine, where sadly corn wasn't harvested this winter as a result of the war. Uh, the second advantage is you can plant this, this corn closer together, which means you get more per hectare or more per acre. But the third advantage is you need less water to build those structures. So in other words, the shorter corn is also more water resistant. And we, we we have looked at deeper root systems that allow the crop to kind of obtain water from deeper in the earth than what we are currently seeing. We have to go back to the roots anyway, if we want to uh, make crops more water resilient. So these are, these are the reasons why short corn is a big deal for us. Uh, if all goes well, the short corn system we are introducing can produce 15, 20% more yield on the same acreage, which would be 10 times, 15 times more than what you would normally get with a new crop. The other thing we are working on is cover crops. Cover crops are nothing new. Organic farmers have used them for many, many years, but in the traditional farming systems, they don't immediately translate into a financial benefit for the grower. With the help of gene editing, we developed a new cover crop that actually uh, produces oil seeds that are an attractive energy source, for example, for companies that work on sustainable airline fuels. And those airline fuels are called sustainable because they are not competing with food production. So we are working on cover crops that basically add value to a farm at a time when nothing else can grow on the fallow land. So cover crops have the adi- additional benefit that they help to store more water in the uh, uh, in the soil. They also have the benefit that they um keep more nitrogen in the soil and reduce the dependency on fertilizer which is of course One of the big challenges also in the water pollution space. So we we are looking at more and more of these elements. And when you piece them all together, you get to a very tangible version of regenerative agriculture. So it's not just the buzzword that is out there. And you talk about at like Davos and all these other events. It's actually something where the people that do the work, the farmers, see the benefit on their own farms and Mm -hmm. uh, also can touch it on their own land.
1: Okay, let's shift a little bit and now look at the the other part of the commitment you're announcing during the Euron Conference. And that's about how Bayer's thinking about involving water in its investment decisions. It sounds yep. fantastic. It's just like we've heard people talking about, well, let's let's look at uh, having an internal carbon price uh, for yep. emissions or uh, you know, other ways of looking at making sure that we don't end up, I suppose, with stranded assets if we're investing. How do you do that with water? Is it having an internal water price like an internal carbon price or is it, as you were saying earlier, look, we're looking at 10, 15, 20 years of where we think the climate's going and we therefore cannot invest in certain projects or we cannot um, have operations in certain parts of the world anymore? How, how, how is this meant to work day-to-day?
2: Day? Yeah, first of all, I'm a huge fan of internal carbon prices. Uh, Bayer has introduced one of those uh, a few years ago and it helped us to make tremendous progress on our scope one and two emissions because investments that otherwise wouldn't have made sense suddenly made sense uh, for, um, for our teams in our supply community. We have not made the same progress on scope three emissions. Their buyer is facing the same challenge as many other companies. So, our suppliers have not necessarily contributed to the decarbonization of our own supply chain in ways we wanted that. And we will also introduce an internal carbon price now for all of our suppliers. The same thing, when you are then in a negotiation and carbon has a realistic price, then the low carbon solution wins. Uh, Where currently at a tender, the low carbon solution loses against an, a, an offer that's financially is seemingly more interesting. We have to get to the same place with water. Now, the difference between carbon and water is the fact that carbon is kind of a global currency, whereas lo- where, where, where water is a local currency. Uh, and the underlying uh, comment of your question is, I think, exactly the way to go. We need to assess where water is scarce today and where water will be scarce tomorrow. And based on where water is scarce today and where it will be scarce tomorrow, we have to then uh, price our water in a smart way, which means we will invest um, in places where we where we believe that that water is abundantly available for our own operations, for where we are where we are producing. Now, for our seed production, of course, that doesn't work because our seed production is close to where the farmers are. So our seed production ultimately needs to be incentivized to look for the climate smart seeds and for like really uh, uh, crops that are much better in dealing with extreme heat, with insect pressure, with drought, with all of those topics. Also with salination, which is a big problem in in some parts of the world as sea levels rise. So there we of course um, uh, uh, have a full focus on adaptation. We hope that we will get a good local currency for water where it matters most for us. And what we already know is that we will not invest in regions where we have a huge water need, but where the whole watershed is no longer able to satisfy that. Um, So water will play a very important role in our planning going forward. The upside is it's going to de-risk our own value chain. The downside is that it just adds to the pain of the local communities where water is missing. Because people not investing there means that there's less money in those communities as well. And I think that is something we should not underestimate. There are many, many communities who will be a lot poorer uh, because humanity in general isn't able to reduce greenhouse gas emissions at the pace necessary.
1: And this gets back almost to what I was mentioning earlier, where does a company come in on this versus a government? I mean, the term ESG, I've never been a a huge fan of it, but I can't get away from it. But this is a a great example of how the E and the S work together and against each other as a company. If you're making a decision based on the E, on the environmental concerns, but the outcome on the S is locally terrible, how how do you sort that through? What's, it's a a real dilemma, isn't it, for any company? E versus S, you want both of them. You often won't be able to have both of them. So how how do you work through that as a company?
2: As we are focusing more of our efforts on uh, on climate resilience of crops, we, we, we certainly bring E and S together. At the same time, there will be hard choices we have to make. You cannot have your sites in an area that is prone to flooding at epic proportions or that just doesn't have the access to the water anymore. And and, and, and that's a trade-off we have to make. Um, which also means, generally speaking, not only companies will migrate, but also people. Um, I, I'm a firm believer that migration is one of those big topics that is a consequence of the climate crisis. Mm. And we have to talk about climate migrants in much more strategic ways and in much more proactive ways than what we are doing today. At the beginning of this call, I spoke about extreme heat. There will be conditions for not millions, but more hundreds of millions of people that are no longer allowing them to to be living there. And of course, air conditioning is a staple for very, very few people in the world. Most people have to deal with situations with extreme heat situations, uh, without the benefit of the innovation of, of air conditioning. And as people will not be able to sustain their lives in those places, they will have to move. As people will not have water for their farms, they will have to migrate. And somebody recently told me, uh, actually a leading expert of water in the World Bank, that this is often a very silent process. These people are just moving away. Their voices aren't heard. And I think that's a very important insight. Um, we have tons and tons of examples, hundreds of millions of people who had to leave their own uh, uh, livelihoods um, and had to go somewhere else just because of water. And again, climate change is expressing itself through the molecule of water. And that
1: then becomes, I mean, that's where it does shift from being, um, I mean, companies can get involved, but that's really going to be a government a, a, a international. Concern isn't it? I and mean, we've already seen it with with yeah. migration That there are a lot of people who have, who have said that part of the problem with in Syria, for example, stemmed from long term water scarcity. I and mean, I I wouldn't put that at the uh, feet of everything that's happened in Syria over the past decade or so. But it's been important.
2: I mean, when you look back at the uh, biography of water as a book, basically describing water as a biography, mm. which I find very fascinating, you see how water has shaped our societies through the ages. Yeah. Yeah, um, uh, the history of China, the early history of China, a gigantic flooding that basically moved the rivers miles, uh, miles uh, from the original uh, uh, kind of place where they hit the uh, uh, the the sea, um, the ocean. So what 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 you can say is that the water topic always has been a big topic for us. I think that's true for society, for the political world as well as for business. Water is too big a topic to. Be ignored, to be debated one every 46 years, or to be just put in one SDG. As much as I agree everything that's an SDG 6, in terms of wash, in terms of what we have to do with water, the the big insight for me is that water is essential for all 17 SDGs. It's the topic. If we want to have a shot on achieving Um, uh, our uh, SDG-related indices until 2030, we need to think about water in a very, very different way. And wherever water blindness exists, we need to find ways to uh, draw attention to how everything is connected. And perhaps, Anthony, for me, the most amazing example for it um, uh, is the increasing data we have on green water. With the help of technology, we now know where the plant-based water sources are in the world. So we know where the trees are growing that produce the uh, uh, rainfall in in the north of China. They are growing in Kazakhstan. We know where 70% of the rain in Burkina Faso comes from, the trees are growing in Kenya. I'm not surprised that Argentina is uh, uh, is uh, facing a horrific drought and a failed crop this year, looking at the rates of deforestation in the Amazon. So the connection of vegetation on the one side and water on the other side, the so-called green water cycle, mm-hmm. is something where we have more and more insights. And in a world that is starting to kind of fall apart and kind of moving and splitting into camps, we need to understand that this is really a global water cycle. This is maybe large regions that kind of create their own little systems. But if we don't curb deforestation, we have both the problems um, uh, with with water, as well as, of course, an accelerated climate change, which will only aggravate uh, the water challenges we see. So for me, the green water topic, and Juan Rockström and many others are working on that, is one of the most amazing uh, discoveries in the run-up the World Water Conference. I think without the World Water Conference that topic wouldn't get the attention it now gets and it's just one of the many things I hope this conference will stimulate and the most important thing is put water in the center of everything, don't ignore it and don't just report about water being a problem, do something about it.
1: Yeah, so I mean thinking then about how you've, you've got Bayer to this stage, I mean everything you've been saying so far If I were just to put this in front of a CFO or CEO, I think this will do it. This will get them interested. But if I look across the spectrum of companies where water is an immediate problem for a lot of companies, CEOs and CFOs, uh, chief executives, uh, the C-suite, they're often not there. Your chief executive has been pretty vocal about this, and and that's got to be really useful. We'll we'll get to the Bayer-specific issues in a minute on this, but... How There would be other, lots of people, I'm sure, listening to this, who are heads of water at other companies thinking, how do I get my C-suite to do what Bayers did? What's the secret? What, what got your leadership to take this on board?
2: I think the most important thing uh, for us was, first of all, to understand that sustainability is actually M&A. It's about mitigation and adaptation. It's no longer just the mitigation debate we, we are also well aware of uh, in the climate space. So as people got their arms around mitigation, we see more and more companies committing to reducing their carbon emissions. And we see actually really cool innovation stemming from these commitments or from people actually delivering against those commitments. The same has to happen on adaptation. We will not solve these problems from mitigation alone. And it's not a zero-sum game. I can do both at the same time. I can invest in mitigation Mm -hmm. and in adaptation. Now, for Bayer, it's easy. When you are in the crop business, you are in the business of adaptation. You always have been. You haven't called it that way. But of course, your constant fight for uh, increasing yields um, with your competitors, your constant uh, focus on uh, R&D expenditure in the space always kept you in the adaptation space. But many companies have a choice. For example, the pharma industry, and that's a part of Bayer where we also have a choice now, the pharma industry does have a choice whether they focus on adaptation um, or not. Um, I think they should, because at this nexus of climate and health, there are a lot of things the pharma industry can do. Extreme heat is basically a cardiovascular event. So we know a lot about cardiovascular topics. Can we combine it with extreme heat situations? The rise of tropical diseases in places where we haven't um uh, assumed they would would again occur the fact that many of those diseases are actually neglected the fact that with migration um, of both insects and humans these kind of diseases move around in the world all of these questions uh, uh, are adaptation questions where companies have to make a choice so Mm -hmm. um if you are looking at it you need to think about can my business make a big difference by focusing on mitigation and where can I make a big difference by focusing on adaptation? And I believe there are a lot of really cool solutions out there. As soon as businesses focus on M and
1: I mean, that's I mean for our listeners, M was always something else, always mergers and acquisitions. I think turning this into a a, a climate and adaptation of a, a story is is fantastic. Bayer has specific issues. I mean, on, on the one hand, historically we could easily say that Bayer's been behind some of the issues uh, that we're now trying to solve for. So pollution, overuse of water, et cetera, et cetera. But I think also a lot of people, when they hear Bayer, will think, certainly in, in, in our world, in the financial world, that Breaking Views operates in, will think uh, the Monsanto deal, uh, fines as a result of that, uh, nothing to do with what Bayer did, but you know, stretching back, I think that's, that's yeah. what we, we think about Bayer. And um, we've looked at the this activist campaign that has, fired, has now forced uh, the CEO, of Werner Bauman, uh, out earlier than expected. So the two things off that number one, how how do you convince people that what you're doing here? And I think, frankly, if people listen to this podcast; they should have got there already. But how do you convince people that this is not just a greenwashing or bluewashing uh, event on on Bayer's part? And then I'll, I'll ask the second part in a second.
2: Talking about the activists uh, for a second, um, we we all have been watching with awe during the pandemic uh, the changes uh, at Danone, where Emmanuel Faber was basically pushed out by, um, by an activist investor uh, that really didn't care about the sustainability agenda uh, Emmanuel was so focused uh, uh, on, yeah? and uh, ultimately um, uh, these kind of activists are out there uh, for money, for short-term interest and nothing else, and yes, some of them also would like to see changes at Bayer that maybe would turn back the clock on sustainability. But we also have activist investors like Jeff Uben, who is focusing on sustainability. So his whole idea is, if I get a company to focus more on solving some of the really big problems, that they will make money in doing so. And and he also has zero in on buyer. Um, so Jeff is somebody um, who I admire for uh, the focus on sustainability. And the question is, Will these activists be rather focusing on driving the sustainability agenda, like Jeff does, or will they just focus on a short-term financial uh, return, like other activists we are dealing with, uh, Signal Us, they would prefer Bayer uh, buyer to, to move. So not all activists are the same, I would say. Um, the huge opportunity for buyer is to really integrate sustainability uh, 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 in, in the business strategy. We have started that four years ago, But of course, for the leadership team now and for Werner's successor, the opportunity is to even further drive business strategy through the lens of sustainability.
1: Again, and the 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 second one on follow up on that is a new CEO comes in. I'm I'm going to assume there's a degree of 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 belief in in what you're doing with water from the incoming CEO, but we'll we'll see what he does. But there's also thinking that some of the activists and yes you're right jeff Ubbin has done a very good job of saying look we must integrate both financial and climate yeah. issues in the way we think about these things set up a, a separate fund to do it let's just, i'm gonna i'm gonna posit a situation i know it's gonna be tri- maybe tricky for you to address this but let's see where we go um the new ceo comes in and either because of his idea and his history but his idea but also the the, the um activists as well Bayer gets broken up can this water plan uh, the new one you have come up with survive that kind of
2: corporate change well You introduced me as a former politician. And the one thing you learn as a politician is you don't answer hypothetical questions. Uh, I think that we have a very powerful healthcare business. We have a very powerful crop business. If the strategic intent of leadership sticks to integrating sustainability in the business strategy, it can survive. But the benefit I see in Bayer is in the symbiotic relationship uh, that we have with our health business as well as Uh, uh, with with our food business. What we believe is we can, at the intersection of health equity, climate and nature, and food security, we can make a difference in the way the business is currently composed that we could not make if the business was separated. For example, we know a lot about micronutrients as a result of our consumer health business. We know a lot about extreme heat as a result of our cardiovascular insights in um, in our in, in in our pharmaceuticals division, and we know a lot about food as being the leading input provider in agriculture. And my sense is that Bayer, the way it is designed at the moment, can make a much bigger difference than um, the parts going uh, for it uh, on their own. Um, let's wait and see. Uh, where the company will be in in two years or three years from now, the excitement we have in our own business for for not using sustainability sort of as a CSR play, but really integrating it in the direction of our business, um, uh, gives me a lot of confidence that when we go back to the capital markets, probably in a year from now, uh, that we will be able to demonstrate how business and sustainability can work together well like companies like erstat or dsm have done before us
1: final question before i let you go you you, you've mentioned some of your hopes already for the U.N. water conference what are you really hoping for what do you think is reasonable to get from the conference and what do you really think is going to happen as a result of the conference
2: what already happened is that we, we got a lot more attention to the topic of water and the often very divided water community is is kind of moving closer together. So my big hope is that this whole idea that if you want to do something on adaptation, water is foundational, uh, will um, inspire other discussions, the discussion on biodiversity, the discussion certainly on climate in Dubai um, uh, at the end of this year. Um, so what I hope is that that we will be able to get water on the agenda in a different way no longer as the SDG 6, but as the underlying topic for all SDGs. I also hope that within the UN, we have like UN water, which is like a small office. Uh, We also had like water related envoys in the past. I hope that the UN zeros in on a group of people that help the UN to really drive the water agenda. It has been tried before. It hasn't really worked out. But what I see with the governments of Tajikistan and the Netherlands is that they have been able to mobilize a lot of governments to contribute to this conference in ways we haven't seen before. And I'm really impressed with the degree of commitments I've seen in the United States. So for the US, and it's not a surprise because the water crisis we we can see in the Midwest or currently with the flooding in uh, in California, um uh uh uh, is really biting in north america Mm. so from that vantage point i'm not surprised that the us government is focusing on it but it's actually great to see it there will be a very large us delegation lastly i think that china and the us can argue about a lot of topics they should not really include water in that i'd much rather would like to see those two superpowers building a degree of understanding and uh, uh, a a bridge to collaborate, like what they have done on climate, also on water.
1: right. Matthias, thank you so much for coming on. I should let you go. Thanks so much. Uh, Looking forward to seeing what other results we get out of the conference.
2: Yeah, Anthony, I look forward to it too, and I'm sure um, this will not be the last uh, conference on water, but I hope it's the beginning of a different global discourse on, on this very important topic.
1: Thanks so much for coming on the show, Matthias, and thank you all for listening. This week's podcast was produced by Thomas Shum in Hong Kong. For more episodes of The Exchange, check us out on Megaphone, SoundCloud, or wherever else you get your podcast kicks. And while you're there, why not subscribe to our sister show, The Views Room? That's it for this week. Tune in next time for another edition.
0: This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com symbols.